I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Curzon Film Podcast. This week we are discussing Lona Scherfig's new film, Their Finest. Discussing it will be our finest, Jenna Hobbs, and me, the just fine, Jake Cunningham. <laughs> Hi, Jake. Hi, Jen. How you doing? Good, thanks. I feel like because I've not been here for a few weeks, you brought me out especially for that pun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I probably would have gone for that one with anyone really um, way to make a girl feel special yeah um, <laughs> it's good to, good to have you back Jen it's been Thanks. a while yeah and so this week we, we're talking about Their Finest which is uh, a film set during World War II about Katrine Cole played by Gemma Arterton who's a screenwriter tasked with making a morale boosting Dunkirk film and uh, I think yeah people maybe feel the need for morale boosting politically aimed content at the moment (laughs) so it feels a bit appropriate that we should be talking about this not to say any reason why we'd need that but um i don't know to what you might be referring yeah um not why would anyone need their morale boosting in regard to politics we all live in a happy utopia here. We certainly do. We just live inside this booth. <laughs> Nothing goes wrong inside the booth. Jake's a wonderful dictator. <laughs> <laughs> you're, uh, you're, you're not the guest. You're just the last one left. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this film, we've got, as I said, Gemma Arterton as Catherine Cole, the screenwriter. We've also got Sam Claflin as Tom Buckley, who's one of her writing partners, uh, and Bill Nye as Ambrose Hilliard, who is a an actor uh, <laughs> in this film uh, so as a bit of a treat for today uh, we've actually got as well as our comprehensive review of their finest we've got two interviews and those are with Gemma Arterton and Bill Nye and we will be dropping them in to the show uh, but as always we must start with our podcast pitch and this podcast pitch this week is inspired by the trueness of this tale um, because it very much feels like a true story uh, which it's not but as you're watching it you do think this does feel like it happened uh, and it, it, in the film it actually goes into the adaptation of truth from uh, journalism and mm-hmm. never letting the truth get in the way of a good story as uh, Claflin puts it and so for the podcast pitch, I wanted to ask you, Jen, to pitch me a story inspired by a true story. 
and maybe weave in some less than truth in there too. I think I've gone for some lot less than truth. Okay. But um, I've taken a long time thinking about this. And one of the things I've always wanted to see on film that I don't think's ever been done very much or particularly well, maybe, is a true depiction of life inside the Chelsea Hotel in the 60s in New York. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, of what it was like. So I was thinking about all the cool people that have lived there and I want to see them all in the background shots, but that's not the main focus of the film. We're not just following the, the Chelsea Hotel. I specifically want to follow Bob Dylan mm-hmm. and Joni Mitchell, right? Yeah. Because back in 2010, there was some beef between them where she did an interview and she said that Bob Dylan was a fake and that he was a plagiarizer. He's and fake then, news. He's fake news. And... <laughs> She never really backed it up. She just said these, like, bombs in an interview. And no one really knows what she means. So I say we wind back from 2010 when Joni's giving this interview. Yeah. And then we see them living together in the Chelsea Hotel, right? And Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan are making an album together. Right. Together, right? So they're going through the whole process and it's great and it's really collaborative and it's going really well. And then this is when Joni discovers the truth about Bob. Which is? Well, I haven't got that far yet. Okay, all right. <laughs> but uh, that maybe he's got, like, puppets that work for him. Just improvise it. He, Bob Dylan <laughs> is the Shakespeare of, of 60s music. Oh, right. And so someone else was writing all this yeah. music. I yeah. I see. Okay. And Joni right. discovers it, and she's keeping that secret until 2010. I thought you were going to go down, like, the... Like, we recently had Neruda out, which is obviously a, a, a very loose um, true story mm-hmm. because it's adapted from the notes of a poet yeah. and so it goes really for the poetry of the story rather than the truth of the story and so I think in the Chelsea Hotel all the craziness that's going on there mm-hmm. you could really have some fun with that I, I could see that existing yeah. that is in the realms of plausibility yeah and so there's a secret album out there that's yeah. Bob and Joni's duet album yeah and there is there was that um, Sky show that came out with a guy playing Michael Jackson, and like it's all based on oh, yeah. true fake stories or yeah. like rumours of recreations of famous meetings that mm-hmm. we're not sure whether they happened. Um, maybe don't go completely down that route because I know that one wasn't <laughs> extremely well received. Cancelled, uh, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, but. You could take some loose inspiration yeah. by that of, of trying to tell these stories that no one quite knows about. Potentially, it all yeah. happened there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I like that. Thanks, yeah. Jake. Um, I've I've got just gone with the one sentence. It's pretty long, but I'll, I'll just okay. pitch it right at you. So, this is about a White House nuclear policy analyst mm-hmm. who retires to open her own gourmet food store, and through popular demand, she starts writing books. And then gets her own cooking show. But in 2017, after North Korea sends a nuclear threat, she's forced to come out of retirement and cook up some revenge. (laughs) Yes, it's the Food Network's own Ina Garten, a.k.a. the Barefoot Contessa, in Gas Mark Action. (laughs) There you go. Oh, yeah, you win, didn't you? Oh, yes, yes! <laughs> Thank you, Jen. Um, uh, yeah, 
I won't tell you which part of that is is <laughs> not true. Is any of it true, Jake? Yeah, yeah. Everything up... This is the crazy thing, all right? Everything up until the coming out of retirement to cook up revenge is true. That's mad. Yeah. People that don't know this, fans of the Food Network, Ina Garten was Richard Nixon's White House nuclear policy analyst. Madness. Yeah, it is madness. And that's That's true. a portfolio career for you, isn't yeah, it? <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Um, yeah, now she's just cooking, like, butter all the time. So much butter. Uh, I should have called it butter. Or yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, there we are. So, um, oh, one, I think that might be the first time. Is it the first yeah, time? Yeah, I've always felt... I'm too up- lenient on you. Yeah, I've always felt weird when I'm hosting to give myself points. Yeah, so okay. you jump right in there and I'm, 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 I'm going to take it, Jen. I'm going to have it. <laughs> it's all right. I'm already on two and a half, so I think oh, I'm you know, yeah, winning. You're flying ahead. <laughs> all right, so there we are. Uh, back on to their finest. And uh, we will begin by speaking to Gemma Arterton, the star of the film as Katrine Cole. So we are delighted to welcome Gemma Arterton, star of uh, Their Finest, onto the Curzon Film Podcast this week. How are you doing today? Jim? I'm really well, thanks. How are you? I'm very, very well. Um, so I've just watched the film yesterday, um, and initially when I was watching it, I thought uh, it's got that feeling of being a true story. It felt like a story that people would know. And then, so I was surprised to find that it, it was a fiction. And I wanted to start by asking you how you then get into the headspace of... Uh, Katrine Cole mm. beyond just the script like what were your research points so she's based on a, on a, on a real life character um, that Lissa Evans who wrote the book Their Finest Hour and a Half knew about her because Lissa used to work in broadcasting and um, and is also Welsh and I think she kind of you know found out about Diana Morgan who's the the, the real um, Katrine Cole um, and kind of that's what inspired the book. Um, so I did a little research on on Diana, who was this. Uh, she was brought on by Ealing Studios to write the the nausea um, or the female dialogue, um, and actually became uh, one of the the main writers at Ealing during that kind of golden age of filmmaking that for, for them and but was sort of an unsung hero of Ealing Studios and a lot of her work we're not sure if it was hers or or if some of her work was nabbed or you know because women weren't really credited um at the, until really like the late 50s on films unless they were an actor um so I sort of did a bit of work on her and also you know I had the gift of the book which you know, is so much more elaborate and obviously there's a lot more going on. Um, Actually, uh, Catherine's character is... There's more of Ambrose Hilliard in the book and um, there's a few other characters, Mm. but, you know, there was a bit of detail there. But, um, yeah, I just just sort of trusted the script and I worked a lot with Lona and Lona's a really uh, generous director with her actors. Um, I think we started, Sam and I started working on the on the script and the characterization really, really early in like March and we started shooting in September. So we were starting to work with the language which was really specific and rhythmic and also I had obviously the accent to deal with as well which was actually a real key for me um, in terms of getting into the character because she's got that kind of other 
there's something quite sort of lyrical about her and gentle and her voice is different to mine um and yeah and then and then Lona and I went to a few exhibitions wartime exhibitions and I did lots of research watched a lot of the movies of that period um but actually you know when you're playing a period a a character in a period film I think you have to kind of not play the period there are certain things you know like the way they sit the Mm. way they you know, women sort of held themselves differently or whatever, but actually we wanted to make it feel relevant to now and I think all of us were aware of not making it feel uh, stiff or um, uh, stuffy um, and and making it relevant and, and, and like we wanted... You definitely see that with Bill's characterisation um, and I wanted mine as well to feel like a girl that you could know from anywhere, you know, any time. Yeah. yeah, it's remarkable how casually uh, it's said in the film that naturally you can't get paid the same as the men um, and I wonder at what points were you just startled at bits in the script thinking why is that so casual right. well it was yeah. I mean it was a fact of life and even until well now yeah. <laughs> um, I think now people would obviously not say that but um the fact that it was is set in the 40s sort of helpful for us as um, storytellers because we can demonstrate the sexism um, and 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 Catherine at first just accepts it and I think a lot of we didn't have feminism hadn't happened yet so no one was really going hang on a minute you know this was the first time really that women were given given jobs you know mm. men's jobs because they need they were needed all the men were in were off and, and fighting in the war so all of a sudden women were you know doing being postmen and uh, driving buses and uh, I think they were kind of, you know the sexism in the film is sort of it's very subtly displayed it's it's that's I think it's really masterfully done actually um, Catherine doesn't retaliate she just sort of takes it and then as time goes on it's actually the writing of the film that makes her question things and um and ask for more money and and insist that the women the, the girls uh, are the heroes of the mm. film and um you know but it's because she believes in the film so much um so yeah i i like that that it doesn't feel like it doesn't bash you over the head with its feminism yeah um and it was katrina's job to write the women's dialogue which was given the slang of slop and I wonder, 70-odd years later, whether you ever find yourself watching something made now or reading a script now and you still think that some, it's still getting the same treatment. I, I don't think that. Sometimes I think, oh, we should have more fem- fem- women writers just because that's a different perspective. So, you know, like, I was at the Venice Film Festival last year on the jury, and I was, there was only one film in the competition that was written by a woman. And I remember thinking, that's such a shame, because that's a whole different perspective that's not being given, you know, and maybe it's because there's not as many films made by women, or there's not as many scripts being written by women. But it's sort of, you know, it, it's got to that's that's what I think I don't think that there's a difference between the way a man and a woman write but I do think that a woman's perspective is obviously different to a man's perspective and so um, 
there might be different ways of seeing things. I remember making a, a film with Marjan Satrapi, who is a friend of mine, and she um, it, she made this sort of movie that it was like a horror movie, but the way she decided to portray the horror was not sexual or uh, blood and guts, or it was actually kind of like beautiful. Mm. Like when someone got stabbed, instead of there being blood everywhere, there would be like cupcakes coming out you know the voices it was pink yeah Yeah. everything was pink so it's a different perspective it's like they can still tell the same stories but they just have a different way of seeing things different experience to talk about um so that's what i think um yeah yeah i think um one of my favorite sequences in this film um is just after the your by the shop that gets bombed and walking past the mannequins. Oh, yeah. Which is a really startling sequence because you go through so many different waves of feeling in such a short amount of time and it it then becomes a bit farcical and then comedy and then you're grounded again at the end of the sequence. And I think that's really sums up what their finest is going for as well, that there is this escapism and there is this humour and friendship that people found during the war, but at home that horror still remains yeah I think that's the kind of overriding um, nostalgia for what was going on um, in London at the time it was pretty I mean it was terrifying obviously people's lives were turned upside down people were dying their their homes were being destroyed they didn't know if their loved ones were safe and yet there was this real sense of community and people a sense of humour and people just getting on with it because they have to, sense of pride, and all of these things at the same time. And um, I think you're right, there are times in this film where all of those emotions happen within five minutes, and I think if we can kind of get close to any sort of feeling of um, what was going on, then that's probably probably it. I think it's a real uh, love letter to to the British... um, uh, spirit mm. and you, did it playing this writer did it inspire you do you feel like you'd be writing anything anytime I would soon? love to be a good writer <laughs> I, I mean I'm just not I've been <laughs> collaborating with writers I have a friend who's a sublime writer and um, she's been sort of allowing me to come in and help her on some of the scripts that she's writing which she doesn't need but um, I, I, I don't think I could sit down with a computer and just write but watching the um some of my favourite scenes are the, 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 the scenes in the writing room where they're just brainstorming. and I mean, it's so thrilling. Um, I think that's, for me, that would be the way I could do it. I don't think I could do it on my own, you know, just sitting there. But I'd get need... you a typewriter. And I actually you... <laughs> did get a typewriter, 1940s typewriter, in honour of this movie, as I loved learning to type. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Gemma Austin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So there we are, uh, the lovely Gemma Artin there talking about her role as Catherine Cole, uh, a screenwriter torn between both men and work during the war. And uh, you were saying to me uh, before the we started recording there that this is giving giving us a good insight into how the war created jobs for women, which wasn't really a thing. Yeah, I think it's something that you don't necessarily... Well, I don't necessarily think about the fact that women kind of weren't allowed to work. You know, you were set up to have children and run a home and that was kind of the plan. You maybe did a few things from home and sold things to make extra money if your family needed it, but 
in general, women didn't work. And as I was watching this film set in the war, I realised that my gran had her first ever job during the war when she was uh, 18. And then after that, she was able to work for the rest of her life. But she was the first woman in her like generation of women to have a job. Isn't that mad? It is, yeah. And um, what's what's a bit different about this film that I hadn't quite thought about, when we, when we often see uh, female workers during the war, it's often in kind of bullet factories mm-hmm. uh, or sewing or as nurses. And I, I don't think I'd ever really seen uh, a female worker within the arts. Yeah, that, that was the that was the <laughs> odd thing, um, and I like that she's not she's not bumbling and she's not confused and she's not out of her depth. She's yeah, she's into- very in control, isn't yeah. she, of the situation? And you know, there's a few comments of oh, um, I have to work with a woman or things like that, but she kind of takes everything in her stride and she doesn't let anything get to her because this could be a film about her cracking under the pressure of being in this all male environment, but. She's ready for it. Yeah. And there are moments where I think she is almost ready to explode. But she (laughs) knows that that ultimately won't get her anywhere. And that will only live up to the expectation that the men have Mm -hmm. of having a woman in the workplace. Yeah, Um, she's doing it for all women, isn't she? She's got that kind of pressure of, no, we can do this. We're not over-emotional. We can make it through. Yeah. Uh, So what, what what did we make of the film? Yeah, I really loved it. it. It's a side of the war I hadn't really thought about, the propaganda films, and also how important the propaganda films were for boosting morale and for the whole country and across the seas at the time. Um, and yeah, it was. I loved kind of sipping into that real escapism. Mm, yeah, and it does, as we said earlier, it feels like a film of a true story which yeah. is not. Um, and I think that... But the film is aware of that and it acknowledges that when it's talking about the... So in in this... In their finest, they are making a film called The Nancy Starling, mm-hmm. which is a, a, a film to boost morale after Dunkirk and it's about two girls that go in their own little boat out to the sea to bring back soldiers. <laughs> And it's revealed early on, this didn't actually happen. No. <laughs> uh, and then it's it sounds too good. And that's that's where the story comes from, in that these two girls didn't actually do that. Uh, they did steal their dad's boat, and they did go out into the water, but that was about as far as it got. But the idea of it was enough, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's it. And I think, and this film is inspired by Diana Morgan, who was a screenwriter during the war mm-hmm. as well. And it's lifting the best bits from it and constructing it into something that actually has more value for the audience. And so we can add in a love interest or we can add in mm-hmm. a redemptive uncle and we can add in these bits because that's what the people need at that point. And it did it did get me thinking, like, this film or the film that they're making, that's fake news. <laughs> like, that it, but it is. Um and it's a it's a weird moral quandary that's I felt only had been created in the last couple of years or so. Um that in this film ultimately that's fine. Yeah, I suppose it's the balance of like how much fake news is good to have just so that everyone feels happy and contented and Thing. So I think now with like Twitter and 
Trump and all of that kind of stuff, you are bombarded with so much real news and fake news all at once that you don't really know what to think. Yeah. Whereas, oh, the good old days when people told us what we should think. (laughs) Yeah, I I think in this sense, it's using real people to create inspiration for goodness. Mm Mm-hmm which is not what we have now. No. Right, we're it's it's the opposite of that. It's using ti- maybe the tiniest 1% of truth to extrapolate and fear. create fear. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we've gone it's like that is such an era of hope even though mm. these terrible things were happening around people, you know, with Winston Churchill's speeches and everything that people were doing, it was to create a hope amongst the people. Whereas now it feels like a fear amongst the people is what's being created. Mm. Yeah, and right. So let's let's think about the the tone of the film here because it's when you go on I don't know Wikipedia or IMDb or something. It's it's sold as a romantic comedy, and I think that that's a bit cruel on it because mm. I think it's a it's a got a bit more weight than that. Yeah, I would definitely agree with you. Yeah, because at at the start of the film we're introduced to um, Katrine and her husband. And then we get introduced to Sam Claflin, who's we know is on all the posters and he's very nice. And when they first meet, oh, they don't quite get along, <laughs> do they? And then Claflin kind of presents through his knowledge of screenwriting where the plot will go. Because of they need to write the plot for the Nancy Starling, and in doing so he presents this meta plot for where we think their finest will go as well. And it does really well to deviate from that as mm-hmm. well because it gives us this structure. It tells us where it's going to go. And we think because of so many romantic comedies we've seen, we think we know where it's going to go. But then throughout, it just reminds us of how the war just completely tore up these narratives for people, these real-life narratives. Yes, definitely. I mean, I definitely really bought into the rom-com nature of it like you know from the whole way through with her artist husband I was like no he's a scoundrel he's not good enough for you and I could see the goodness within Sam Claflin's character I really wanted them to get together and I was really like behind that story Mm. and really bought into it for sure but yes you're right the the war took away a lot of those happy stories a lot of people's husbands never came back and I think it would do a disservice to the time period to not yeah um, kind of realize that and it does a disservice to the film to say that the romance is the first thing that you define it by yeah you're right you're right it's a a powerful story about a woman making her way and doing something really great and interesting and being on a film set it's like it's a really interesting story to uncover and to pick apart yeah it would like it could exist with I, i know we we know why the romantics the romance is there is to sell the film it's mm-hmm. like that's to hook people in it could work without that element at all definitely like she could be quite content already married and we remove that element and that would even be an amazing statement as well to have yeah. this film and that she is as a a male work partner who is not relied on as a love interest but that's a story for another film um but it does it does really work well in those moments when she's working and i think that's when it Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So it's most invigorating. When it's, it's easy to get hooked into the clicking and clacking of typewriters <laughs> and pins going up on the wall and bits of string as they're plotting out a story. <laughs> but it doesn't matter because it's still just really enticing, isn't it? It is, yeah. <clears throat> what is it they called female dialogue in that film? Slop. Slop. Oh, that really got my goat, Jake. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, Jen, you actually are uh, both a female and a writer. Yeah. <laughs> I am indeed. <laughs> I've not yet been told I write slop, but maybe it's coming. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I wonder how, uh, for you, like this, ultimately the story here is key for what you're doing now. Yeah. And did, did it make you think about that at all? Yeah, definitely at points. Uh, uh, yeah, I think, like I kind of said to you before, that it's always amazing to remind yourself that women had to go out there and be the first one to do it. And aren't I in a lucky position where, although it's a bit crazy to go, I'm going to be a writer because that's really unstable. It's not as crazy as it would have been 50 years ago mm. or more. And yeah, I could, def- I could definitely kind of see myself there. The romantic view of like, at the typewriter, this is my lovely life. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. I think, I think I could see you doing it as well, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, Particularly the bit where they go on a nice holiday. <laughs> I'm good at a holiday, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so the film begins with the writing all happening in London. And then once they've got their film, the Nancy Starling, uh, and they've got their crew, they head off uh, to shoot, obviously not in Dunkirk. Uh, is it Dorset? It's in Devon. Devon. Mm. Uh, your rival. I know, I'm Cornish. Yeah. Uh, how did you feel about that? You know. Well, I do have to admit that Devon is pretty, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> it made a good Dunkirk. I think it I did. believe it. Um, and then we we spend quite a bit of the film in a little pub and on the beach and just around this little village yeah. where it's being made. The funny thing is, is that Devon and Cornwall, you know, they're not a million miles apart. And although that was, you know, way back in time, that does not feel very different at all yeah. <laughs> to the Devon and Cornwall I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and those those bits, once when you get away from the city, you can see the comfort in the relationship start developing mm-hmm. as well. And... I think that's really strong, particularly who we haven't talked about that with um, Ambrose Hilliard, Bill, Bill Nye's character. He really comes into his own at that point. He is such a gem of this film. Yeah, any uh, screen time he has is just incredible. Yeah, uh, so let's uh, let's have a quick chat about him. So he's, I imagine he he was once a big name, and he's not quite a big name there now. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a form of comeback role, and not so dissimilar to the kind of role that we see any number of older English actors doing now Mm -hmm. after they've been away from the spotlight for a bit and then come back. He's almost Michael Keatoning 
yeah. uh, is what he's doing. And Bill Nye really tackles this well. And I mean, it's Bill Nye doing Bill Nye, but it's built around him perfectly, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It really is. And also, how lucky Bill Nye's never really had to do that comeback. He's yeah. just had a straight through. Yeah. Um, so let's hear from the man himself. Um, I sat down with Bill Nye to talk about the role of Ambrose Hilliard. But I also, I don't know why I gave up watching films on on planes, but I just did. It's something about, it, I like, I get, I get a ridiculous amount of satisfaction not opening the headphone bag. I know you're looking at me as if I'm a weirdo, and you're quite right. But uh, I, yeah, I just don't watch them anymore. I just read, 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 sleep, read. And I suppose sleep, in read. that time you can start the book and finish it. Oh, I got through three books. If you go to Australia and New Zealand, you know, it's like, you know, you've got all the time in the world. Brilliant. We are uh, thrilled to welcome Bill Nye onto the Curzon Film Podcast to talk about their finest this week. My pleasure. Uh, so, Bill, your character, Ambrose Hilliard. I mean, when you first meet him at the start of the film, he's like the impression that people like to do of a serious actor in the pub, isn't he? Yeah, he's, he fulfills almost completely the cliché uh, idea about actors. There are three things that people say about my job in the same way as there are probably three things they say about your job. The three things they might say about my job is that we're all extroverts, we would crawl over each other's dead bodies to get to a part, and that we're sexually incontinent, none of which is true, of course, apart from the sexually incontinent bit which is obviously true obviously yeah um and where is this hilliard I, for me it got a sense of the basil rathbone sherlock holmes in it well what um performances were you grounding it on well uh, none really i i didn't sort of <laughs> i didn't look at anyone at all i uh, i simply went by what it, what was suggested by the script and the script was such a cracker uh, you know, they're rare scripts of good scripts, and this was such a you know a great one that I, I and it, and it, and I it, it, great writing just persuades you into certain performances or certain behaviour. You know, I, I did. I've got to that age where I can answer certain questions um, quite honest. I mean, perfectly honestly. Uh, one of which is asked often, which is how much research did you do for this part? And, and if you ask me that, I can honestly say I did absolutely no research whatsoever. Um, and I get a big bang out of saying that because you're not supposed to. Excellent. Um, well, I must say your your no research it really showed. Oh, in well, an excellent you. way. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> and how dare you? No, no, no. Thank you. And uh, Hilliard's opinion of the role he's playing that shifts. Uh, initially, he thinks of the character of Uncle Frank as a drunk fool, and then he gets a bit more out of it and a bit more out of it, and. I wonder, was there ever a role of yours that initially you were given at the start and thought, oh, it's nothing really, but then you got into it a bit more as you learned a bit more about it? Well, I tend to, uh, over the years I used to, I don't know if I still do it so much, I don't think I do it now, but I used to sort of live in a, and I'm not even uh, kidding, I used to live in a sort of hostile parallel universe in which I was about to be humiliated. It was what I had in lieu of a method or a process of any kind. And I, and, I, and I would often finish a job and think that I'd humiliated myself. And then people would be quite positive about it. And it would always come as a kind of surprise to me. Um, I don't know if that answers your question specifically. But, uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, he, um, the thing is, as soon as he doesn't want to... He, he, Ambrose is in almost perfect denial about how old he is. And he, when he's given the script, he still thinks at his um, time of life he's eligible to play the young 
romantic lead, which is, you know, pathetic. And uh, then when, it, when it's explained to him that he's, in fact, he's being offered drunken Uncle Frank, he's initially appalled. But as soon as he starts to play it, because he's got no alternative, because there's no other gig and he's got no money, um, and people start saying nice things, suddenly, you know, everything's OK. Yeah. And I wonder, have you ever been given a script for a, a drunken Uncle Frank, turned it down, and then actually seen what that role could have been? Um, I don't think so, no. I don't think I've ever... I don't think I've... I, I've been asked, you know, do I regret turning anything down? I don't... There's nothing really that I regret turning anything down, no. I, uh, as far as I know, there might, be, there might be one that I'm unaware of that's, you know, that exploded elsewhere and was a fabulous success. And, but I don't... Not that I remember, no. And there's, there's a really lovely um, a scene in this where you sing Wild Mountain Time. Uh, in the village pub, and it reminded me of a similar moment in Pride as well in oh, the village yeah. hall. Yeah, yeah. And I was wondering if you could tell me what the what the sets are like in those communal moments. Well, that was a ver- that in the script. I think it simply said they gather round the piano or mm-hmm. something. And Lona Scherfig, the fabulous filmmaker who made this film, uh, obviously extended it into what's really one of the you know uh, sort of central scenes in the movie now and it's great just to see people turn off all their politics and their their concerns about the war and just sing you know and listen while people sing a couple of songs it's kind of very moving um, and and it was a very nice feeling on the set it was I mean apart from me obviously because I I get the wind up you know I don't I'm not really I can sing you know I can hold a tune as they say but I'm not it's not something I do easily um, but once I'd done it a couple of times and people were kind, you know, you, you get into it. And the girls sang beautifully. I, I love that song, you know, it's mm. a beautiful song and such a perfect wartime song. Um, but it's nice to see, and it is exactly what happens, you know, with, not just with actors, but with anybody who works away from home where they gather in pubs or hotels, you know, people, you know, stand around and have a sing song or just hang, hang out and, you know, and, uh, and have some fun. Yeah, it's a really lovely moment in the film that gives it a bit of breath because we just come out of the war-torn London at that time as yeah. well, and it's um, yeah. Then a similar moment in Pride, it just gives it lifts a bit of the weight from the film. Yeah, I loved that hall, all the scenes in the hall in Pride. I was very, I was very, uh, I was desperate to be in Pride, and I was very, very, if you'll excuse the pun, proud of what uh, Matthew Watchers and Stephen Beresford achieved the director and the writer. And talking of singing, when I came in the room here, you were listening to some James Brown. Yeah. <laughs> and so if we were to get you up on the piano, is that what you'd be singing? Uh, I don't know if I'd attempt a James Brown song. It's very hard to sing anything that James Brown sung, because why would you? Because James did it, you know. But uh, yeah, the song that's been obs- obs- I've, I've been obsessing over today is out, uh, out, out of Sight by James Brown. Check it out. And um, so you mentioned there that uh, that Ambrose Hilliard is a bit too bit too old for the things that he's doing, um, in terms of his character. And this year you revisited the role of Billy Mack as well oh, for yeah. Red Nose Day, yeah. actually. Uh, and this year also marks ten years since you were Davy Jones too. Oh, right. There's a new Pirates film this year. Oh, how, really? I wonder how you how do you look back on those films with great affection and gratitude. And wonderful memories, wonderful people, fabulous experiences, you know, really, really um, kind of uh, 
important times, you know. Uh, love actually was something that altered my professional life profoundly. Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean was one of the opportunities that, that derived from that. Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, those movies are beloved, as is Love Actually. You know, those, they entered the language, those films, you know, in a way that uh, not many films do. And to have been involved in one of them is something, to have been involved in several is, uh, is, is a very, you know, I'm a lucky, beyond fortunate man. Yeah, um, I think they're, they're pretty physically demanding with the, the amount of CG and physical work that's going into them. Would you ever fancy getting the tentacles back on? Yeah, no, I'd love it. And, I, and, and actually, the, the, the process has moved on because they never stop. It always moves on. And, uh, but even then, it was, uh, I was, you know, at the beginning when they paint 250, I can't remember, I used to have black dots and, and white dots all over my face and put you in very sad computer pyjamas <laughs> with white bubbles all over. It's a very lonely place to find yourself. Uh, but luckily, they ran out of jokes in about the second week. Um, and but but it means that you don't have to wear all that stuff because there are a hundred geniuses on computers that later are going to faithfully report your you know pr uh, transfer your performance into the creature. So uh, yeah, I'd be very happy to uh, ride again, Excellent. to sail again. Yeah, <laughs> brilliant, Bill Nye. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Cheers. So there we are, um, Bill Nye there. Uh, now you're saying that Bill Nye never really had to do the go out and come back um, because he actually came into the thing quite late because uh, in the interview there he says that it was love actually that really broke him. Really? Yeah, and like that's what gave him that's what gave him Davy Jones in Pirates of the Caribbean. So it's only in the last 10, 15 years that he's been a big name. Isn't I think of him. Yeah. I think of him as like this institution. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, like he was popular, but that's not really like that's only come now which actually reminds me of um i was listening to soundtracking edith mm -hmm. bowman's show with um edgar wright and he was saying that he saw uh the queen musical and in the queen musical they don't even have don't stop me now <laughs> and don't stop me now wasn't that big at the time and the band would have really divided on it and then he put don't stop me now in Shaun of the dead and it came huge. And I just assumed, have always assumed, that Don't Stop Me Now was huge yeah. and one of Queen's biggest songs. And it wasn't. That's mind-blowing. Uh, yeah. I literally think of it as like the first song I think of when I think of Queen. Yeah. That and Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah, we, and uh, Ed Bright was like, I don't want to say that I made it. <laughs> but I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there we are. That and love actually is the same for Bill Nye. Madness. Yeah. Um, obviously, he was doing stuff before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But... Just a young up and comer. <laughs> I suppose though he's had he has had these kind of perfect Bill Nye roles since then, mm. um, like this role, like his role in um, About Time, mm. which I love that film. Yeah. <laughs> Set in okay. Cornwall as well, yeah, wasn't it? Very nice. <laughs> and he. Um, that film was what got me into Nick Cave as well. Oh. Because yeah. uh, that's the song that he requests into my arms. Oh. Which is, that's a horrible scene, but lovely. Uh, anyway, so Ambrose Hilliard. Uh, he is, I think for a lot of people, he'll be the selling point of this film. Yes. Um, because he is, it's Nye doing Nye to the nth degree. He's really going for it because he gets to be both himself and a caricature of himself too. He's mm -hmm. really having fun with it. And you can tell. 
every time he comes on screen, I just want to laugh. Like the restaurant scene that he has where his, like, is it his manager? Yeah, his agent. His agent. Oh, it's Eddie Marzan. Yeah. He's very good. It's really funny. And brings that, like, dead sheep's head in. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you could see him having a spin off film in himself like just <laughs> bumbling around walking onto sets not quite knowing what he's doing yeah definitely uh, and so we he's a bit of he doesn't quite get that his time is maybe over mm-hmm. when he first gets sent the script for the Nancy Starling he thinks he is the handsome young man <laughs> uh, not the alcoholic old uncle <laughs> and that's that's his journey really is um, he's having to accept that what his role within the film industry and acting how that can differ and part of that is down to uh, Jake Lacey's character Carl Lundbeck he was great I love him I love him in lots of different things and I was really surprised to see him in this film Mm. I just wasn't expecting it at all but he was great his bad acting was bad yeah this is um, you might know him as Fran from uh, Girls as Mm -hmm. well and yeah, there's a different kind of bad acting between Nye and <laughs> yeah. Carl, uh, Lundbeck because Nye's fun bad. And, well, he's bad in a like a traditional actor yeah. bad, isn't he? Yeah, um, and Lacey is actually it's an it's a real achievement to get good bad acting yeah. without it being annoying. Yeah, I know what you mean. And that's where the identity of Hilliard changes because he sees this young he's a soldier he's not an actor Mm -hmm. but he's good for the allies as well because he's American they'll put him in the film and that'll boost morale across the ocean as well Mm -hmm. Uh, and Hilliard is roped in to teach him and that's that's actually a really great scene by Arterton when she convinces him to become his teacher yeah and she just completely owns it and (laughs) she like at that moment she establishes herself as having more masculinity than anyone else in the film (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and yeah and then we get this guy learning to act and then we we're in the film and that's once the actual the cameras start rolling being within the creation of the Nancy Starling is just really lovely so interesting things I never thought about about how you make a how you would have made a film back then Um, because now we think like oh yeah to create all those boats we'd use CGI or whatever but they had like painted cloths Mm. and I remember because you start with that shot looking through it and I was like how have they done this how have they got all the boats and then you see Bill Nye's character walking in it and you realise how they've done it Mm. very clever very inventive yeah uh, there's a great bit when they have to reconstruct the um, the men coming onto the beach Dunkirk Mm -hmm. and there's this glass pane in front of the camera and the glass pane has had the men painted onto it so it looks like there's thousands of men um, and then Nye again just ruins the frame by, <laughs> by walking in front of it. Um, yeah, I just there's, I think it's always fun to see filmmaking being made. Um, like, it's like the magic of it, isn't it? It's mm. how you go and see a film and you just assume it was really easy, but actually when you actually see how it was done you, you're even more amazed by it like when you go to the Harry Potter studio tour or whatever and you see the mini Hogwarts mm. that they use for all the panning shots it's just mind blowing yeah and I th- imagine on set it must have been a complete nightmare having your crew and then your second crew <laughs> yeah. and then your actors <laughs> uh, and yeah it's those those are really great those bits and we should probably uh, get into some spoilery stuff uh, in a bit 
Um, but before we go on to that, was there anything else you wanted to bring up? Um, I loved in London how they didn't shy away from kind of the devastation of the bombing. At points, um, you know, uh, when the bombing has occurred and you see Gemma Arterton's character, Catherine, um, looking around the rubble and things, and you, you see, like, amongst mannequins, like a dead woman and it doesn't shy away from how gritty and horrible that experience was for people as well as it being a light fun film to enjoy you get a bit of both which i think's really yeah, nice yeah it is constantly grounding you which mm-hmm. is important because it is quite easy to get caught up in the romanticizing mm-hmm. ro- romanticizing romanticizing of the war and it does well to to bring yes. us back from that right uh so uh, if you haven't watched it, what are you doing? Go and watch Their Finest uh, in cinemas from today. And once you've done that, come back. Uh, here are spoiler section uh, and any recommendations that we've got on the Curzon Home Cinema Service. That's your spoiler warning now. So, not everyone made it out alive. I really wasn't expecting that, Jake. Yeah. I'd really bought into the romance of it all. Mm. And it was a bit heartbreaking yeah yeah and as soon as someone says that they'll come back later you just know they've they've signed their death note don't do it yeah (laughs) just yeah just don't leave and why would you anyway you're writers you're done you've said (laughs) what are you doing on set just just leave no one's gonna notice just no one will know yeah it's fine uh, yeah, so Sam Claflin didn't make it, and the second time he's done that to me in a film in recent times. What was the other time? Me before you. Oh yeah, and Hunger Games. Yes, and he, Hunger Games. Me, this guy, he's covering out a niche. <laughs> uh, Sam Claflin will never make it to the end of the film, <laughs> not on my watch. Um, but I ultimately quite like it because we we mentioned in the main section that. Uh, they set us out this structure of a romantic comedy and how the dynamic between her and her husband and him is going to play out and ultimately it is not what we're told it's going to be I did know her husband was a scoundrel though yeah no man who's an artist during the war is a good man is he not (laughs) that's what I've decided okay yeah and I mean, that, sound, that sounded like an old saying (laughs) that your grandmother told you or something my grandmother always said let me tell you no man who was an artist during the war is not a scoundrel. <laughs> Some words I live my life by. Yeah. But I was not surprised when she came back and he was having an affair. No, no. Um, he was he was unpleasant, wasn't he? He was. Yeah. And then she put her wedding ring in the bin. Yeah, she could have sold that. She, to... Yeah, you know, people are starving. Oh, no, I think it was fa- it was not expensive. She bought oh, a Woolworths. Woolworths, of course. Oh, man. Remember Woolworths? Oh, those were the days. That was the best bit of this film. <laughs> like, thinking, the memories. Yeah, the way that it made me think about Woolworths <laughs> and how it existed. What a time. Gosh. Are we now living more of our lives without Woolworths than with Woolworths? No. Not yet? Not yet, no. That'll come, though, Jake. I never want to see that day come. I will <laughs> Sam Claflin myself before I have to live in a time where Woolworths was away for most of my life. Yeah. Um, so, uh, also, uh, come the end of the film, we've kind of got uh, Hilliard has become a teacher for Jake Lacey, and that's, I think that's more his role. That he's, mm-hmm. gonna, he's seeing himself as becoming this acting teacher, which, if you're going to have an acting teacher, sounds like a pretty good one. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, thankfully... Uh, Carl Lundbeck won't be acting anymore. (laughs) 
just the one roll and out, that's fine. Um, but this was a thing, uh, even in Powell and Prasberger's Canterbury Tale. I was just thinking yeah. about that, yeah. Yeah, and the lead actor was a genuine uh, American soldier. Yeah, and he just did the one film and never to be acting again. Yeah. Um, that was the thing about the wartime, wasn't it? That people just did loads of different things because half the men were away or doing this or doing that and there weren't really as many rules as there've yeah. been before. And I think even in the construction of the film the film itself is more treated as a job. Mm-hmm. Like we like to think of film as as art mm-hmm. and it's vocational and it must be done for the person whereas this is it is ultimately not for anyone that's making it. Yeah, it's for the public. Yeah, and so it is a public service mm-hmm. and everyone is there to do a job. So if the man from the army gets told this is going to be your job, he's an army man. So yeah. he's got to obey orders. And I think that's that's almost how the film is being treated as they're making it as mm-hmm. well. It just it's the thing that needs to be done. Uh and I quite like that. Yeah, me too. Yeah, um, so there we are. That is their finest, uh, and that's in cinemas now, so do go and check it out. We've also got The Happiest Day in the Life of Ollie Mackey uh, going on Curzon Home Cinema from today. Uh, that's Yuho Kuzmanen's film. Uh, it won the prize in a certain regard at Cannes. Uh, it's a Finnish black and white film about a boxer, and what would you like to recommend, Jen? So, uh, yeah, I'd really like to recommend uh, Curzon Home Cinema's new collection called New British Talent, uh, which has got some absolutely great films on it. It's got Notes on Blindness, which was actually my favourite film of last year on there. It's got The Falling on it, which I had completely forgotten that I'd watched a couple of years ago and absolutely loved. And I'm going to rewatch it this week because it's just great. You won't regret watching that one. And 45 Years, the Oscar-nominated Charlotte Rampling stars in that film and it's truly beautiful. And there's so many other films in that collection that are really worth a watch. Yeah, I think um, you've got one of my favourite films from the last few years, Slow West, uh, 20,000 Days on Earth, which is a documentary about Nick Cave, uh, Orion, The Man Who Would Be King, another doc about uh, a guy who impersonated Elvis but wore a mask and people thought he actually was Elvis. Uh, and it's that's excellent and not enough people saw that. You might have, it, it was on Arena on BBC4 a few years ago. Mm. Um, uh, but do check that out. That's very cool. That's a, actually a really great, great collection. So do check that one out, the new British talent one. Uh, right but that's all we've got time for Uh, so thank you so much for joining us thank you to CSR for letting us use their studio and thank you to our writer in residence Jenna Hobbs thank you for joining us thanks Jake see you soon and uh, yeah we will see you soon join us next week bye bye Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. 
And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.